Hello, friends. We are here with episode 98 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. As usual, I like to kick it off in these uh, series of 90 episodes, a little fun trivia to put my uh, co-host on the spot here. But uh, Mike, here's my uh, question for you. In the year 1998, a certain tech company was founded that one might say has kind of changed the entire landscape of the tech industry. What do you think that was? Apple? Good guess, but um, at the risk of showing my own age. Way before that. uh, Apple was around even... In my early days when yeah. I had an Apple II GS, so for the hard nobody, no, nobody bought their hardware. <laughs> Not very many, although I did, and I kind of paid uh, for it before the Mac days. But uh, I'll give you one more guess. What do you think? I feel like NVIDIA is a lot younger than that. Um, 98. You got me. All right. A little thing called Google. Oh. Yes, it's hard to believe than that too. Google was from 1998, founded in California by Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And yes, the the rest, as they might say, is history. Depending on your perspective, that might be better or worse. But no, mostly a lot of innovations have happened regardless. So that's your fun fact for 1998. And yes, the Red Wings repeated as Stanley Cup champions. I'm going to throw that in there too. (laughs) Ha ha. All right. All right, enough of my uh, ranting about days of past. We're here for our weekly, right? So we got an awesome issue. But first, Mike, I got to ask, how are you doing today? I am doing very well. I, you know, I'm just thinking about Google in 1998. And maybe that is the reason since 1998, haven't had as many folks uh, coming door to door selling me encyclopedias. So I, I think they might have put that industry out of business, which maybe is a good thing. That could be a case of correlation implying causation. I don't know, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Yes, a lot of things have changed in the business sector since that time. But one thing that hasn't changed, we have another awesome issue of our weekly, and our curator this week is Kelly Bodwin. I know, Kelly, you've had a, quite a scramble to get things fitted in, so I always appreciate your time on this, and you've got an awesome issue for us to discuss. And as always, she had great help from Rafael, our weekly team members and contributors like you around the world. Well, it's another episode of our weekly highlights and guess what? We have another showcase of Cordo's capabilities, which you've been hearing about quite a bit lately. To take a step back for a second, at least for me, the biggest paradigm shift for those of us who grew our literate programming and reproducible document skills with our markdown is that Quarto itself is not tied to one specific language. Thanks to the architecture under the hood of Quarto of sending language computations to specific engines, we can seamlessly integrate code from multiple languages in the same document, in the same website. Whatever we produce a Quarto, we can have that interoperability out of the box. Now, the classical example from my days in our markdown, although it's still even prevalent in Coral to hear about later, is a handoffs between R and Python that was piggybacking on the shoulders of Reticulate. Very powerful, still very powerful. But one thing that Coral comes with out of the box is support for client-side interactivity inside web-based reports 
This is opening the door to harness the power of JavaScript inside your document in multiple ways. Now, if the amount of R packages available or Python modules available gets your attention, oh, you should see what's available in the world of JavaScript. It can actually be kind of overwhelming, to be honest. But have no fear, folks. Quartal brings full support for one of the more innovative uh, niches in the JavaScript ecosystem, Mike Bostick's Observable JS. And our first highlight shows just how elegant this multi-language approach is. And it happens to be straight from a JavaScript extension developer. This is authored by Nicholas Lambert, who is a research engineer in geographic information. He has authored a Quartal HTML document to produce a set of very clean interactive maps using his own Burton.js library, but with our code to prepare the data handoff. And so, as kind of mentioned now, the report kicks off with some light pre-processing of worldwide population and GDP metrics categorized by country with some spatial geometries thrown in from the popular SF package. And then, now the interop magic begins by preparing the data set for observable JS using a built-in function called OGS underscore define. This is built into Quartal, folks. You don't have to install this yourself. This is my first aha moment for me, is that this world of JavaScript, you, you get it, you get it free. Like this is amazing here. And then Observable JS actually comes in, again, through Quartal, with built-in widgets that would be familiar to anyone who's developed a Shiny app or leveraged crosstalk within our markdown as well as some classical interactive visualizations. But much like how you can load any R package into your R session or Quartal document that you have installed, you can load any open source JavaScript library within Observable JS, such as what's used in this document, one called GOverview and also the author's Burton JS. You can load these easily in Quartal without having to install them yourself using what's called JS Deliver, uh, Content Delivery Network or CDN. Again, I'm kind of blown away by this, but the author clearly shows that he loaded two of these JavaScript libraries without any fuss, just a simple call to a require function. That should sound familiar to our users and it's all set to go. So the remainder of this document is filled with you know, pretty quick and concise examples that are both static and interactive views of the world maps with overlays like bubbles that are sized by population and covers by the amount of GDP. And I'm just really impressed with how clean this is, how accessible this is. But again, the big picture here is that we have ourselves an author of a JavaScript library who has discovered the power of Quartal and has created what one might view as kind of like a package vignette for his extension, but it's tailored toward the data science audience with tools that they are familiar with, like now Quartal and using R to prepare the data. That's amazing. I think this opens the doors for a bunch of possibilities here on how we can tie in these worlds of reproducible reporting, communication and data science with R, but then taking those visualizations to the next level with 
observable JS, again, built right in the portal. I've seen this in the documentation, but seeing um, this post is a great way to hit it home for me that this is technology that's right for the taking. And I can't wait to put this in practice with some other projects that I have going. So as you can tell, Mike, I was blown away by this. What did you think about um, this report the- here? Blown away is is the right uh, phrase. I think this was absolutely mind blowing for me. You know, I just as much as as you and the anybody else out there, I love Shiny. But any tools that enable us to share our work with others without having to host it on a server somewhere are just incredibly powerful um, because it allows us to be really flexible with the type of deliverable that we're providing the end user. I'm so excited to see the capabilities we have with Cordo and Observable JS. You know, until now, I've only seen sort of the basics with OJS in Cordo, like bar charts and histograms with maybe a checkbox or a, or a slider. And I haven't actually tried it myself, to be honest. You know, I've gone through the Cordo guide online and played around um, with, with what's available up there. I know I'm slacking, but but I will get to it soon. But it, it looks like now, you know, thanks to Nicholas and, and maybe some others as well, we're starting to see some examples of using other JavaScript libraries with Cordo that, that just extend the realm of possibilities so far. Um, and like you said, there's a brief mention of a JavaScript library called Geo Overview, which I think it is very briefly mentioned, but it, it makes uh, this really nice interactive chloropleth map, um, which is the first map in the blog. And I'm not 100% sure how that's that's related, if at all, to the, to the Burton library. But like you said, and one thing maybe I didn't necessarily realize is that you have the ability to import any open source JavaScript library um, within Quarto, which is, is crazy powerful. And I, you know, my mind is racing right now with all of the uh, utilities that we have in JavaScript that we may have the potential now to bring into Quarto. And um, man, it's it's crazy. It's incredible. Uh, one other thing I guess I'll note is that I, on the Quarto website, um, it does say that dashboards are coming soon. So I am excited for when we get something like Flex Dashboard in Quarto um, and not just in our markdown where again, we can just have the client side do most of the work in these documents uh, and have these really easy um, file handoffs to, to end users if that's a use case, if that fits our use case at the time. Um, so definitely going to be staying on top of all the news in, in this space and really appreciate uh, Nicholas putting this blog post together because it's, it's the first that I've seen that really dives deep into JavaScript and Cordo. Yeah, and I know that things like this, the technology behind this post and and the other examples that you've been referencing, I think are going to be the foundation for, in essence, the Flex dashboard-like functionality that's coming soon. It was easily one of the most requested uh, items uh, back at our studio conf when we were hearing the presentations about Cordal because Flex dashboard has been so popular in the R Markdown ecosystem. But with everything, with the underpinnings that we're seeing here, it's it's obviously just a matter of time. I think we're gonna be seeing that. I don't wanna put you know timelines on people, but I gotta think that in the coming months, we're gonna be seeing this and it's um, gonna be a huge game changer for the Quartal document and website authors that wanna 
through these completely self-contained documents that can be interactive, very powerful, and simply passed around as an attachment, so to speak, or hosted externally, whatever have you. You can have you can do it both ways. Um, I still just can't get over the fact that no installation was needed to load these libraries. I have, when I was learning, and I'm still learning JavaScript. What am I? I'm not an expert at this yet. But when I was fooling around with some libraries, especially around like automated kind of like Selenium like testing, I remember having fits with, you know, NPM and Node.js and trying to get all the dependencies in. And I, I don't want to fault those projects. They're obviously very powerful, but it can be a whirlwind to get all that set up. So I just, you know, maybe if you haven't been around this ecosystem for a while, it may not really resonate like it is for me, but this just saves so much friction to have all this available to you. So the fact that the Cordal developers have you know, made the decision to hook on observable JS as like that foundational piece that can probably get you pretty far on its own. But then when you want to do the extensions, like what these mapping utilities are showing, you have that right at your fingertips. That oh, that, that just can't get over that. That is just amazing stuff. Yeah, it's like the tiniest bit of code too. It's literally just require the package and then the version of the library that you want to uh, mutes. It's, it's incredible. It's very, very R like, uh, syntax, I guess. Yeah. And if you're it, from the require, uh, side of the side of the bridge, oh, oh, to the library side of the bridge. Oh, oh, uh oh, do I sense a, a, a package loading, uh, debate? Oh no, no, no. We, we, we don't need that. <laughs> blog, that blog post coming next week. I bet we will. Yeah. But that'll be a hot take one of these days. Uh, <laughs> But in essence, what's hot here is, like I said, this interoperability of different languages in Quartal out of the box. That is just straight up awesome. So, well, and speaking of awesome, one resource that I'll put in the supplements of this episode is we're seeing all these resources around Quartal just pop up left and right. Well, there is this great website called Awesome Quartal on GitHub. It's actually a GitHub readme that is kind of indexing all these different uses of Quartal. I think that's uh, one to keep an eye on as these new tutorials and these new showcases pop up as one central place to keep track of it all. Absolutely. Good shout out. Sounds like a, the big book of Quartal. Yeah, I think we may be seeing one of those again soon too. Well, speaking of uh, starting things up, I don't know if you've been envious of like I have, Mike, but have you ever seen like a really cool developer online that's doing a screencast or doing a demo? And then they've got like this amazingly tricked out setup with like their terminal showing all these different statuses and loading all these things just as their terminal was launching. Maybe I'm too geeky on this. I don't know. But yeah, probably not. <laughs> well, I was I was going to uh, say you might want to look in the mirror to answer that question. I've seen some of your live streams and the, <laughs> the bells and whistles that go off when somebody uh, when when somebody posts a comment and the background music and oh yeah, your oh, yeah. container setup. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm trying to live the life. I'm trying to live the life, but um, I still have a long ways to go now. That that's just straight up like developer stuff. But over in our favorite land of R here, you can actually have some of those enhancements too. Now I'll 
I'll put a plug in for a tool or a package from, called Prompt from Gabor Sardi that lets you bring a boatload of customization to that friendly R console prompt in case you get a little tired of that little, you know, greater than sign just kind of staring at you. But that's not all. The startup package authored by the esteemed Henrik Bengtsson, who is the creator of the future package ecosystem, easily one of my favorite, you know, domain, you know, domain specific package, you know, set of libraries. He is author the startup package, which brings you a ton of flexibility to configure what and how your R experience kicks off when you get started. Now, it should be said that R comes with capabilities out of the box to do some customized startup behavior, and you can use that with combinations of user-defined files called .rprofile or .renvironment to load environment settings. By the way, if .rprofile sounds familiar to you from the land of PackRat and RMV, that's what it uses to change the package library on startup. So you've probably seen it, even if you haven't made it yourself. Now, for simple operations, the default behavior might be good enough. I certainly acknowledge that. You can do a lot with it. But there may be other situations where you deal with complexities like wanting to conditionally execute certain operations based on maybe what execution environment you're in, or to load certain environment variables at specific times, you are on the hook to do all that bookkeeping yourself if you want to stick with the default paradigm. But the startup package takes the good of the default behavior, but then brings in flexibility by supporting the ability to have multiple startup scripts multiple environment variable files using a directory structure. This is actually very common for almost all of the Linux tools that I use, especially the command line ones, on a daily basis in my day job. You'll see these configuration directories that have a boatload of things inside. Well, with startup, we can have that too in the R side of things. So version 0.19 was released just a few days ago. It's got a few quality of life enhancements and bug fixes. This is going to sound niche, but I can see all the power of this. But you can now utilize an environment variable called r underscore startup underscore file, where you can map that to a separate r script stored somewhere on your local system to execute after all the startup operations have been completed automatically. So you don't have to do like source startup script dot r or whatever. It is just going to Startup package is going to take care of finding that and load it for you automatically. Again, could be very handy for conditional execution. And let me share, let me conclude here with a very important use case for why startup is so beneficial to someone like me. I have to come a little bit of confession time, Mike. Be, be nice to me on this. But I have in my Linux account at the day job, a .r environ file that has probably over 50 environment variables set up, and many of them are quite confidential in nature. A lot of API keys, PATs, access tokens, you name it, database logins. Oh, do I feel icky putting all that in one place at once. Now but it's in our get it's it's get ignored though, right? It's it is get ignored, yes. Okay. I did something right here. But here's where things 
Yes, yes. <laughs> but here's where things got a little crazy for me is that if I was helping a colleague with how they get set up with their environment variables to connect to like that external API or database that's hosted on AWS or whatnot, and I'm showing them, oh yeah, you need to define this environment variable. Let me show you how I did. And suddenly I've just shown them all 50 things. Ah, no, that's bad. So the fact that startup could let me segregate these environment variables and logical groupings as separate files and then only bring them into my R session based on maybe the project I'm working on or where I'm launching the project from, startup will let me only load what I need at startup. Whereas right now in my default behavior that I just confessed, all those environment variables are being loaded no matter what project I'm on and who knows what can happen from that. Now that's obviously a niche case, but that can also be very handy if you're trying to keep things a little more clean especially if you're dealing with multiple systems on a network and HPC systems. So again, to Henrik's style, this is a utility that I think is very much valuable, especially to those of us that are leveraging R in multiple software environments and making sure that we have the right setup, the right startup at the right time. Very cool package. I definitely will be leveraging this to clean up some of my wrongs, so to speak, in my environment variable management and startup script management. But I had fun reading about this for sure. But uh, Mike, I don't know if I convinced you or not, but startup is pretty fun for me at least. No, so have you actually used this package before, Eric? Startup? I have not, but I will be this week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, it seems like an incredible package. You know, I have probably leveraged the .r profile uh, file and pushed it maybe a little further than it should ever go. You know, again, if you haven't had much experience with that file, you may have seen it just suddenly appear in your R project when you initialize a, a Renv or an, uh, a Packrat uh, project. And it, it essentially, it, it just, uh, that R profile file runs a script if you're initializing a, a, an RNV. Um, environment. It runs a script called activate.r that runs when that R project file gets clicked. And really that's that's all that happens. Essentially, whenever you click that R project file and open it, uh, the first thing it does, as you'll find out in this blog post, or the second thing it does, I guess, is, is run whatever's in the, your .r profile file. Um, I have edited the R profile file or created one to launch a shiny app when you double click on the R project file, kind of like faking, faking the experience of uh, the inexecutable. That file. is really oh. slick. I never thought about that. Pretty cool. Yeah. So don't, well, I'm glad that you think that it's cool. I thought you might hate me for that. Ah. <laughs> but the, the client didn't have uh, much for budget in terms of actually getting the shiny app stood up and hosted somewhere, unfortunately. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one of the, well, like you said, one of the really, really cool aspects of the startup package, I think that is incredibly useful and is lacking from the current uh, just workflow of that, that R profile file is um, setting secrets or, or essentially loading secrets from as environmental variables um, conditionally based on uh, a, a different environmental variable. And I think that's super, super powerful. I can see a ton of use cases 
um, where that would be helpful. Um, that's about halfway down the blog post. So if that's something that you're interested in, definitely take a look at the package down site um, where there is some great documentation around that. Uh, I will throw out one warning um, to everyone. There are some syntax differences if you are on Windows, of course. Thanks, oh. Bill Gates. Uh, oh. <laughs> but everything uh, everything looks like has been covered, whether you are on Windows, Linux, Mac, uh, whatever. So incredible package uh, to be added into the ecosystem. I think it's absolutely brilliant work by Henrik. And, and like you, Eric, I'm excited to, uh, to try implementing startup into some of my more production, uh, production workflows. Yeah, and the other use case that I have actually coming up very soon is that we are in the process of configuring ways to launch dedicated HPC jobs on nodes that are spun up in AWS where the environment there is going to be probably a bit different than what we have internally at our company firewall. So we got to be able to have ways that conditionally uh, check for those and then load the appropriate resources, authenticating the things like S3 buckets or databases and the like. So really, really cool stuff. And once you're in these situations where you, that default behavior just doesn't quite get you far enough, yeah, the investment in startup is more than worth your time. And Henrik, to his credit, much like the future ecosystem, has done a tremendous job of documenting all the nuts and bolts of how startup works. So you can get started, pun intended, very quickly. Speaking of uh, something that I understood maybe quickly or not so quickly is the subject of our last highlight where we often hear about you know, one of the praises in the R ecosystem, especially around visualization, is leveraging the grammar of graphics in ecosystems like ggplot2. That has become the mainstay for many of our visualization needs um, from the very beginning. Well, you've also heard in many episodes of our weekly highlights about the very powerful grammar of tables implemented by Richie Owens' GT package, causing huge waves of positive change in many of the industries that I frequent as we speak. Well, what I did not know is that there is also a very similar grammar approach that you can take in the land of Python as well. And that's where Karina Bartolome, hopefully I didn't butcher that too badly, um, has authored, get this, a Quartal document that showcases for a very relatable example, the different types of syntax that you can have to implement grammar of tables in both R via GT and Python via Pandas and other libraries. But Mike, why don't you take us through what else you had saw in, in uh, Katrina's post here? Absolutely. This is a really cool blog post uh, in a lot of ways. And I guess I'll start by saying I, I really appreciate those uh, who, like myself and Karina, uh, try to fight back against the R versus Python language wars. And instead, maybe we just acknowledge that most of the good parts of both languages uh, have been implemented in the other. Um, I know that ggplot2 gets a lot of praise from many communities outside of R, including the Python community, um, because its flexibility and its power didn't exist in many of the popular visualization libraries in other languages. Um, and I, I guess I would have sort of expected the same thing for tables, since I know how much of an effort R Studio and others 
you know, have put into the GT package and, and Rich especially. But it looks like, however, uh, we can, and stop me if you're shocked, pretty much do the same thing in Python that we can do in R and make a really nice table. Um, so this blog post starts out with a comparison of the final product and, and a really nice image showing the uh, R built table and the Python built table side by side. And it, it really sets the tone for the blog post and the fact that these two things look pretty much identical. And uh, Karina goes through the entire workflow um, starting from loading the required packages in R and loading the required packages in Python. It does that sort of side-by-side -side code comparison all the way through the blog. So you can follow her steps um, in either R or Python, whichever your preference is, or both, if you're interested in working with both languages um, like I am, and see how she gets from, from point A and, and grabbing this subway data from Buenos Aires, Argentina, all the way to building these beautiful tables at the end of the blog post. So a really, really well done, um, interesting blog post, both showing off some great data visualization and comparing um, what we have available in, in R and Python. And what's nice about this is that first, the structure of this document itself has great use of, you know, actually hiding the code initially on startup via these, you know, clickable drop expanders. I forgot the term for it, but What's nice is that you can go to a specific part, you know, to what you're most interested in and expand that out. And as you, as you said, Mike, she's got these nice side-by-side -side tab views of the R and Python implementations of it. Really great for learning as you're thinking about, you know, maybe either duplicating or doing another analysis in a different language, how these two, um, you know, how these compare to lack of a better word. And the, the visuals are really strikingly similar. It's, again, maybe we shouldn't be surprised, right? But it is great to see this in one place. And again, Quarto has made it super easy to put this all in one place. Very elegant structure here. Really enjoyed reading it. And yes, Reticulate was also used here in Quarto to help with that data handoff between R and Python and vice versa. So it is very much supported here, just like it was in our markdown back in the earlier days. So again, great, great demonstration of both Quarto in action and obviously building tables in an elegant grammar of table fashion. Again, really great stuff. And certainly as I start building tables and I work with cross-functional data science teams, it's great to know that if I need to dive into that other world, Whenever that is, I have great resources to draw upon it. Absolutely. And maybe I would just mention, if you haven't seen the blog post yet, please check it out. But it's these aren't just you know regular old data tables. These are tables that have data visualizations. I'm talking uh, chloropleth maps. Uh, I'm talking bar charts. I'm talking polar area coordinate diagrams and, and line charts built into the cells within the table in a really cleanly implemented way. Um, so, so it's absolutely worth checking out, even if you don't necessarily care about uh, the R or the Python side, if you're just more of a, a data visualization practitioner who likes to make tables and, and likes sort of the integration between um, you know, the, the larger graphical data visualization space as well as the tabular space and bringing those two things together, this is a great tutorial for that as well.
And I don't know if Karina listens to this, but if you are, and we're first of all big fans of your post, but hey, you know that little uh, our studio table contest is out there. Maybe this is a good candidate for it. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think it's all the work's already been done. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we've we've mentioned that contest before, but definitely go to our studio site for more information on that contest. But yeah, table generation many different flavors of it really cool to see speaking of cool to see we got lots of other cool things to see in this issue so we're going to take a little minute here to highlight some additional things that we saw and as for me part of me always likes to read or learn up on some of the driving mechanisms behind my favorite tools and packages such as shiny test 2 which we've heard about in previous our weekly highlight episodes that is built upon the concept of snapshot testing. And that's where Indadreet Patil has wrote a really awesome presentation. You wanna guess what it was written in? Oh gee, it's Quartal again, um, of how snapshot testing works within TestThat and other extensions. So it was really cool for me to see, you know, just the power of snapshot testing, some of the ins and outs of this in a very accessible example based on some text that the examples are running in Markdown and how you can make sure that there aren't any regressions as you update those functions producing the text. So really cool learning material for me to follow up on as I begin my more rigorous uh, testing adventures. But uh, Mike, what did you find? That's a great find. Um, I found a blog post that I love seeing, which is one where a large corporation contributes to open source instead of just only working uh, privately with closed source. So Microsoft um, has released a new repository package, our package called Viva Insights, um, which allows you to analyze and visualize, visualize Viva Leader Insight, Insights data. So I guess Microsoft has some sort of a platform called Microsoft Viva Advanced Insights, which used to be called Microsoft Workplace analytics. Um, and with this package that just serves as an API to this, this platform, it allows you to run pre-built analysis and visualizations off uh, data with settings for HR variables, privacy threshold, uh, etc. allows you to leverage advanced analytics functions, which are built for Viva Insights metrics, um, and maybe integrate analysis of Viva Insights data with your R workflow seamlessly. So, you know, maybe I can imagine if I'm building a shiny app where I want to pull in some of this workplace analytics data um, that this package might be a great place to do that. Um, it, Viva Advanced Insights isn't a product that, that or, or workplace analytics isn't a product that I'm familiar with, but maybe some of you listeners out there, um, it will resonate with. Um, so this is uh, one that you might want to check out recently. I guess this is speaking to me because recently I was working um, up in Databricks and trying to automatically connect to SharePoint and was able to use uh, one of Microsoft's uh, 365 oh, REST yes. API yep, clients, yep. which uh, provided me with a, a really nice way to authenticate into SharePoint and move files up to SharePoint and bring files down from SharePoint into Databricks. So I appreciate uh, the work that the folks at Microsoft have done to allow us to uh, continue to work alongside them in open source world. 
Yeah, it's always great to see, like you said, corporations giving back. And my familiarity with this particular product will be a bit amusing, but my at the day job, we use a lot of Microsoft products. Big shock there. But every Sunday evening, I get an email that's from Microsoft about Vivia insights into my week prior about calendar time and other things like that. I've always wondered just what is really going on with that. So maybe this package would help me understand what's really going on with it. If HR would let me access it, that's a story for another day. I don't know, but Hey, you know, it's nice to see that I can explore with R at least. So I think that is later in the year. Geez, I'll see how far I can take that. But, um, I will say you can t- you can go really far with just following our weekly every week. You've seen the the great resource around Cordo lately and and visualizations and tables. It's always something new every week. So you can find all the back catalog at rweekly.org. Also, this very podcast is always linked in every issue, so you can always have a listen to our back catalog of audio episodes. Lots of great insights that Mike has shared with us, and I tend to ramble a bit, but, you know, we always have fun, and we always enjoy hearing from you. As we mentioned last week, we'd love to hear, as part of our celebration of 100 episodes coming up much sooner than I even realized, if you've had a great resource or a great uh, favorite moment of our weekly highlights or our weekly project itself that you'd like to share with us, please send us a shout out. Um, the best way to get in touch with us would probably be on Twitter. My handle is at the RCast, and I'm always happy to hear from what all of you have been learning about from our weekly. And uh, Mike, how can people get in touch with you with their stories? I'm on Twitter as well at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Very nice. And also, if you see a great resource that you'd like to have shared in the upcoming issue, Again, rweekly.org has a direct link to the upcoming issue draft, so you can simply send a pull request to our GitHub repo, and our curator for the week will be glad to get that into the issue. But yeah, that, that's the wrap on episode 98. Thanks, as always, to you, Mike, for another great episode, and we'll be back with episode 99 of the R Weekly Holidays podcast next week.